We felt it was quite fascinating that you can uh, pick the top 20, and this is to be fair, listed companies, and they do 97% of the economic profit pool of the industry. So you could shut down the rest and the, the profit of the industry wouldn't change. How does that happen that so few companies generate so much value? There's clearly a luxury play that gets you into the top 20 players. And there is also a value discount play uh, to get you there. Let's talk about the global economy in general next year. What are your key observations? There is still a high level of uncertainty out there in the industry, and which is not a surprise. We just look at uh, you know the political developments in the United States, the trade tensions with China, Brexit in Europe, economic problems in Italy. You know, a lot of the core markets are affected. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. This week on the BOF podcast, we're bringing you a special conversation I had with Akim Berg, senior partner at McKinsey & Company, about the state of fashion 2019, our annual report that helps you understand everything you need to know about what's going on in the fashion business next year. In case you're interested in a deeper look at the state of fashion 2019, we'll include a link in the episode notes to download the report and view a video that summarizes the 10 trends that will shape fashion next year. So here's my conversation with Akim from earlier this week. I wanted to start just by giving you some quick, quick fire points on what we have been finding to be some of the key ideas, themes, and topics for the state of fashion in 2019. We are calling 2019 a year of awakening for the fashion industry, a year of an urgent awakening. There is an, the emergence of a new paradigm where old rules no longer work. There's an increased need for companies to move fast and be nimble and deal with all of the rapidly changing consumer demands led by millennials and Gen Z. At the same time, there are interesting things to be cautious, cautious about. There's dangers that continue to lurk around the corner. So we need to kind of shockproof um, our companies and brands and you know, create productivity enhancements to ensure we can weather the possible storms that are ahead. Um, so with that, Akim, I just wanted to start by taking you know, your temperature on there were, there were basically three big bullet points that we want to cover today. One is just an overall outlook on the growth of the market. The second is to discuss what we're calling the super winners. These are 20 companies dominating value creation and fashion. And the third is to do a deep dive on the core industry trends that we are forecasting for next year. So let's start with the first one. As we look ahead to the outlook for 2019, what do our BOF professional members need to know about the fashion industry in 2019 when it comes to growth? So I think as every year we've, um, we've surveyed the BOF 500, we've added uh, you know, a long list of uh, McKinsey clients, we, we asked our own experts. So this is uh, you know, our attempt to get uh, the temperature and we believe that you know, after a relatively strong year in 2018, which even turned out a bit stronger than what we thought in the beginning, four to five percent of growth overall, and overall means, you know, across all price points from uh, discount to luxury, across all product categories, you know, from accessories to apparel, and also across all geographies. 
uh, we believe growth will soften slightly down to three and a half to four and a half percent. So let's put that into perspective. Um, the long year trend was around five and a half percent. So we are below what we've seen over the last you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but uh, compared to 2016, where we only had one and a half percent, you know, this is a significant, uh, you know, improvement, but it is below that average. So, um, as you said, uh, I think at the beginning, there's a lot of reasons why, why one could worry. You look at the stock market, uh, you look at uh, trade tensions, you look at Brexit, you look at, um, you know, a lot of companies that, you know, started to struggle. Um, so we feel, you know, there is growth for sure. Um, it's gonna slightly less than this year, uh, hopefully, but it's not taking any, you know, big events into account. So mm -hmm. crashing out of, uh, of the European Union for the UK would have an impact for sure. Um, that is bigger than what we have estimated here. Okay. Let's double click the, on that a bit because, you know, the, the 4.5 to 5.5 or the four to five, uh, percent growth for 2019 actually when you when you kind of cut things up by geography and by um, category and by kind of market positioning yeah. there's a kind of noticeable difference can you can you kind of walk us through the geographic and no, absolutely and, yeah. so I think interesting part is and that's not different to last year growth comes from the emerging markets you know all the you know, so-called developed markets, you know, have rather, you know, limited growth. We're talking here about North America, that's even the bigger one, two and a half to three and a half percent. We look at the mature part of Europe, which is one and a half to two and a half. This is basically inflation, yeah, or slightly above inflation. Um, also Middle East, Africa, you know, three to four percent. The real growth happens in uh, Asia Pacific emerging, so it's not including Japan and Korea where we think six and a half to seven and a half percent, also above the historical average. Um, we see growth uh, happening in the emerging parts of Europe um, and we also see it in Latin America. So in that sense, I think not really a surprise. That seems pretty obvious, right? Pretty obvious. So what was surprising in there for you? I think US, uh, you know, I think is expected to be a bit better. We also were cautious last year. So um, I think that is a bit the surprise. And then obviously you mature part of Europe, one and a half to two and a half, that is pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, that means if you want to grow, you have to be in the emerging parts and in the developing and growing parts uh, of the fashion world. Right. And then when it comes to like product categories, so we, you know, we covered apparel, footwear, sportswear and other categories. Where, where is the growth coming from there? Yeah, unfortunately, also no big surprises here. Okay. Yeah? So, um, and uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's the effect of doing the report now for the third time. There is some, uh, some things that seem to be given. And I think sportswear is still strong, not as strong as it used to be. It was double digit, uh, you know, two, three years back, um, but it's still six, seven percent. So clearly above the average, clearly above the long term average. It's one of the growth engines uh, of the industry. Um, and in that sense, as I said, not really surprising because that hasn't fundamentally changed. Uh, what has changed a bit is the polarization when you look at value segments. Yeah. So. Um, we've seen that before, but it's, it's becoming stronger and stronger in a way. Uh, we see that Discount and value is benefiting um, and that also luxury and affordable luxury is benefiting. So we see 
five to six percent in value, which is a lot driven by you know growing middle class in in a lot of the emerging markets that get access to uh, to apparel and to fashion and to buy into it. But we also see that luxury, uh, you know, is doing well, and, and that in you know certain pockets like the United States uh, or North America in a broader sense. So that continues. What is shrinking, um, you know, is uh, the mid market. So is it shrinking or go- growing less well, no, quickly? You, you, okay, that's very precise. Right. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's uh, you're right. It's still one and a half to two and a half percent. So it's not shrinking. Um, but if you take uh, inflation into account, uh, then we are almost shrinking. Right. Yeah? So I think not almost. Globally, inflation will be higher than, uh, than 1.5% or 2%. Sure. So in that sense, this is pretty much flat. Uh, but that, I think that also is reflected in the broader uh, McKinsey Global Fashion Index. So if we look at the winners and losers, you also see that polarization happening. Yeah. So when you think about the difference, just so our listeners out there can understand, what's the difference between like value and discount? And what's the difference between affordable luxury and luxury and the way you guys think about that? So the way we do that, and we, we you could say, you still will, we call it, you know, we invented that categorization because the industry as such, you know, doesn't, didn't have that. So everybody has a slightly different cut every you know, analyst is using a different one, every, you know, publication is using a different one. The way we do it is we look at price points in certain categories. So we have some, you know, statistically relevant categories, let's say denim, and then we look what is the, um, the average price that you have, uh, you know, across the full spectrum of companies. And Let's name some examples that starts with Primark in the discount uh, area, that is H&M in, mm-hmm. um, uh, in the value, that is um, Esprit in the mid-market, that is Tommy Hilfiger in Premium Bridge, uh, that is Tory Birch in uh, Affordable Luxury, and that is Gucci in, uh, in Luxury. Okay. So that's the different cuts. And then we, you know, we try to understand how our volumes developing uh, along those groups. Okay. So overall, just to sum up, growth will continue widely in 2019. It'll be slightly slower than the growth we've been experiencing in 2018. But that growth is really polarized into two core segments of the market, which is right at the top in the luxury segment and affordable luxury segment and then right at the bottom in discount and value. And it's really the middle market that's, that's suffering the most. And it is also polarized in geographies because it, you know, growth happens in the emerging markets um, and there's you know, far less growth in, uh, in the developed ones. Okay. The other thing that we revealed in the State of Fashion 2019 is the idea of the super winners. And for three years now, we've been talking about these companies yeah, uh, 20 companies that dominate the creation of value. And before we start discussing the companies in particular, I wanted to understand when you talk about economic profit, which is a measure that you guys have used in this um, McKinsey Global Fashion Index to really identify these super winners, in very layman's terms, <laughs> what is economic profit? We take the net profit and we deduct the taxes and we deduct the cost of the working capital. Okay. 
So, so which you know also means we're not only looking at you know the the EBITDA, but we want to understand who um, generates profit on top of the capital that they use for generating that profit. So if you are in a you know high capex uh, you know play and you have you know you know low profits you know you, you might even destroy value mm -hmm. um, if you use very limited capex and you have high profits you know you're obviously doing very well okay and so it's about also about productivity of, absolutely right so and um, and we do that based on a um, on a database that we've developed now over the three years it's more than 550 companies Roughly 350 uh, are listed, some 200 are private companies, but that still disclose numbers or figures because they have to in their legislations. And we collect that, it's a bit like a puzzle, we collect top line, bottom line figures, and um, we run um, then different kinds of analysis. Okay. So as we look at this, this list of companies, um, this year, there's these 20 companies that are generating about 98% of the economic profit. 97% of the economic profit. How does that happen that so few companies generate so much value? It's pretty stunning, to be honest. It's yeah. stunning. I think what we did last year and the year before, and I think, uh, I think some of uh, who are listening in uh, might recall that, we looked at the top 20%, we looked then at the next 60% and at the bottom 20%. And already at that point, we felt this is pretty polarized because the top 20% last year were generating 144% of the value uh, uh, creation. And the rest was basically destroying the rest uh, or was even destroying more than they did. So in the end, it's 100, obviously, as a pool. Um, this year, we've, we wanted to really understand what's happening uh, in, the, in the top 20%. Um, and roughly, this is top 20 is 110 companies. So we, we looked into the different uh, players and we realized that the really interesting number is not the top 20%, but the top 20 players. And that's what we call the super winners. And Inditex is, you know, is leading the list um, and they have an economic uh, profit of more than 4 billion US dollars. 4 billion wow. US dollars uh, as economic profit. It's not the turnover. Yeah. Um, and uh, number 20 on that list is Burberry, still doing 446 million US dollars. And then you have a lot of the, you know, the, the you know, usual suspects in between Nike on two, LVMH on three. But you also see, you know, TJ Maxx, you see Ross. So I think there is certain patterns uh, that we, we can identify. So there's clearly a luxury play that gets you into the top 20 players. And there is also a value discount play uh, to get you there. Uh, we recognize, not surprisingly, that the mid-market is uh, under-indexed. Sure. Yeah? Department stores are under-indexed. Sure. Um, Asian players are under-indexed. Um, uh, E-commerce, pure plays are under-indexed. Actually, they are not even in there. Yeah. So, um, and there is, of course, a lot of reasons for that. But we felt it was quite fascinating that you can uh, pick the top 20, and this is to be fair, listed companies. Um, and they do 97% of the economic profit pool of the industry. So you could shut down the rest 
Yeah, um, the rest from our sample, but also you know a larger part uh, that is not in the sample and out there, and the the profit of the industry wouldn't change. That's really you know stunning, as you as you said earlier. What I found puzzling when I looked at this list is there are companies on here that when you read the business of fashion are not performing well according to the market. So. You know, you read these stories about Gap shutting down tons of stores or Burberry not meeting investor expectations. How do you explain, or L Brands, for example, how do you explain why brands like that, even with the struggles that they're going through, are still, you know, on this list of super winners? So I think if you take the two US examples, that is obviously very big businesses. Gap yeah. and L Brands. That's very big businesses, and if you, you know, and they are profitable, and um, they are not that uh, capital intense uh, than other businesses, so um, you know they still outperform larger parts of the market. That's, and they might actually be removing costs from their business by shutting exactly. down stores and stuff. Exactly, and I think, and that is triggering an interesting discussion because it's not only about uh, you know the EBITDA and. Um, but it's in the end about the cash flow you generate, and it's it's about you know how capital intense mm -hmm. uh, you know your operations are. Mm -hmm. How would this, given everything that's gone in the gone on in the market, how would this list have looked like ten years ago? Well, we actually looked into that. Yeah. So um, and it's quite stunning. It's uh, it's a bit what you would expect. Uh, you know, you're missing department stores. Mm -hmm. You know, on that list, there were department stores on that list. Uh, you are missing certain mid-market players um, that were very successful and had a high, you know, economic profit. Like Coach or um, yeah, Michael Kors. Michael Kors is on this list. Michael Kors is down. on the list, but you know, I, I was more thinking about um, you know, mid-market department stores in the United right. States. Okay. So. Um, also in Europe, I think there, there is a lot of those plays where you see that. You know, consumer demand has changed, that uh, the industry has changed, that, you know, sportswear. Sportswear is the opposite. You see Nike and Adidas on that list. Um, and, well, this is not surprising because we just spoke about the high growth rates in athleisure and in sportswear. Sure. Um, and we all had, uh, you know, could see how they were thriving um, over the last couple of years. Right. Well, what I love about this list um, for everyone that's listening is that it really gives you a sense of how broad-based the state of fashion report is because you know there are obviously lots of reports that try to understand the fashion industry, but when we set out to build and create this report, we wanted to really have the ultimate complete overview of the entire industry from discount all the way to luxury across all of the different segments. So you really get a sense, and I think you know, the, the fashion industry, according to our report, is worth more than like two and a half trillion dollars globally. So this is a big industry. Absolutely. Which kind of brings us to my, our third discussion point of the day, which is the, the key industry trends. So each year, as a team, McKinsey and the business of fashion, we put our heads together, and we really think about the things that we're observing in the market, the conversations that we're having, with key executives in the industry, that you know, the, the things that are starting to bubble up as important um, topics for us to think about as we move into the in the future, and the as we move into the year to come. So we have ten trends roughly, and they're split up into three groups: the global economy, consumer shifts, 
and the fashion system. Maybe Akin, we can we can discuss the global economy first. We have you know caution ahead because you know there's these downward movements in economic indicators, as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. There's the ascent of India, and there's Trade 2.0, which is this idea of like planning for potential shakeups and value chains. Let's talk about the global economy in general next year. What are your key observations in terms of what we took away from from the their survey? I mean, we surveyed almost 500 people for this report. Yeah. Now, I think as in, in previous years, there is still a high level of uncertainty out there in the industry, and which is not a surprise. I think if we just look at uh, you know the political developments in the United States, the trade tensions with China, look at Brexit in Europe, we look at you know economic problems in Italy. You know a lot of the core markets are affected, and um, and therefore it's very hard you know to make forecasts, but it's also very hard to to prepare for that. And I think that's a bit why we believe that trend number three, the trade 2.0, uh, is, is relevant. Yeah? We have plenty of discussions with clients about, you know, what does it mean for China now? Will they really impose, uh, you know, 25% uh, you know, duties? Um, you know, we all understand it's not that easy to move volumes out of China and into other geographies. Um, you know, East Africa is a dream, but uh, that will take years and years and years to become, you know, relevant in terms of size. Um, if the economic downturn, you know, would hit us faster, you know, how would you need to prepare for that from a cost perspective? So I think, yes, we've seen that things can turn out better than we thought. That's true for 2018. We were a bit more skeptical if we look at last year's uh, forecasts. But I think 219, uh, for good reasons, means you need to be a bit cautious, right? Yeah, and um, and therefore prepare for that. And that's what we recognize with a lot of our clients who now take a look at, you know, their sourcing setup. They take a look at their supply chain setup. They take a look at their general cost setup, SG&A, um, and uh, they try to strengthen the brand and try to make the right investments into the brand. So sure. I think that is the general view that we see. I think India, you are much better prepared uh, and positioned than me to uh, to talk about that. Why is India relevant in nineteen? Because I think we heard that before, and I think yeah. we even discussed it at Voices. Yeah. Well, I think I think you know, India has been lurking in the background um, as a big opportunity for a while by the sheer force of the demographics, one point three billion people, and the shift from kind of rural to urban population and the resulting kind of um, moving out of poverty, essentially. You have a growth of this like middle class. The thing that's held the Indian market back for a long time is that there's a big informal apparel sector in India. You know, everybody has a tailor, everybody, you know, gets their own clothes made. We and used to have that in, in Europe as well. Yeah. And there has been a traditionally a lack of retail infrastructure. So even if you were a big brand and you wanted to set up shop in India, um, it was hard to find suitable places. And that was further complicated by a regulatory environment where you, know, you weren't able to go in and set up 100% of your own business. You had to find a local partner. So for all of these reasons and the complexity of the Indian consumer mindset, it's very difficult for... Um, for brands to really find a way of making an impact in India. But 
a lot of those things have now changed. And I think probably the single most important factor has been technology. So you have this smartphone, you know, we had speakers on stage at Voices um, talking about the fact that in a few years there's going to be something like 800 or 900 million people wow. in India with smartphones. And these, these people have, you know, it's the, oftentimes the first computing device that they've had. And all of a sudden, everything you want to do, payments, or um, you know, even if you don't understand, you're not a literate person, you can, you know, with the technologies that are now available, you can speak to your phone and tell them what you want, as you know, right? But, so, but, but do you think the Indian consumer is, you know, similar to the Chinese consumer and, and the kind of development we've seen in China will now replicate in India? Well, I think what's similar is that consumers everywhere have access to the same information. And so, in addition to being kind of emboldened with technology, which means you could just, instead of having to go on a retail store, you can buy it on Amazon or Flipkart or any number of these e-commerce sites that are exploding in India, you also have access to brand information. So, I mean, I think the Chinese story is a different one because, you know, there is a very strong local dress and tradition of dress in India, for, especially for formal occasions. There's this fusion of Indian aesthetics with Western aesthetics, which you don't really see yeah. in China. But what's clear is when you have an economy that's growing at something, I mean, in the video it says, you know, GDP growth in India will be, you know, 8% yeah. and for the next five years. That makes India the fastest growing major economy in the world. That's, and you have this like hugely growing, um, you know, middle class. So I think for all of those reasons, you know, the changing, you know, demographics, the rise of technology and shifting consumer tastes, I think um, the Indian opportunity is very interesting. Indeed. So the next bucket that's worth discussing is, you know, broader consumer shifts that we're witnessing. And in this category, we have the end of ownership. We have this thing we call getting woke, um, which is about kind of younger consumers' interest in social causes. We have now or never, which is about, you know, making purchase journeys easier. And this idea of radical transparency and kind of providing more you know, clarity and, and transparency to the consumer. So as you think about these consumer shifts, Akim, which, which ones are you most excited about as you think I about think next? I think there's a big surprise to me uh, and there is uh, some that I'm, you know, more excited about. And I think the big, big surprise to me is end of ownership. Uh, yeah. And that was, I, I recall when we discussed that uh, with, with the team, uh, we said, oh, well, you know, is that true? You know, is there real evidence that this is now relevant and will become even more relevant? So is, what convinced you? I think the data in the end. Yeah. If you just look at the size of the, some of those companies, if you look at, uh, you know, also some of them, the, the consumer research that shows that there's younger consumers out there that are more open, um, you know, to, you know, to hiring um, um, uh, fashion products or you know, to reusing fashion products. Um, I think um, that convinced me in the end. Um, and, and the data is, is relatively straightforward. So I think that was the bit the surprise piece to me. Yeah. Um, I think woken up is also interesting. You know, it's also kind of, you know, surprising because- Getting woke. Getting woke. As they say, yeah. Yeah, so, um, because that is, you know, a brand takes a stance on a political topic. You know? And we've seen that with Nike and Kaepernick. We've seen that, you know, with Levi's, you know, asking everybody to go um, for, you know, and, and uh, to vote. 
Um, but we also see that in Europe. And I think it's interesting in that respect because for many, many years, this was kind of the, the 101 playbook uh, of marketing is stay out all of that. Yeah, don't, don't be controversial. Don't get caught in a public debate. Don't take sure. you know, a position. And, and now we see that you know, brands become more brave uh, and that also the consumers you know, support that, like that, uh, yeah. requested even, uh, yeah. that you have a stance and that you cannot you know, shy away from, from having a position. I think one needs to be very careful with this uh, trend though because just as consumers are looking for brands that are more purpose-driven, they're very perceptive and aware of brands that are just doing it as an economic profit-motivated activity as opposed to something that is genuinely connected with what the brand stands for. Agreed. And so, you know, this was something that also came up on the voices stage. It's like you don't do this stuff just to, you know, to make more money or to grow your business. You do this stuff because it's connected deeply to the kind of soul and purpose of your brand. And so where it works really well is when the causes that brands are getting behind are ones that the consumer genuinely can see is inherently part of that brand's yeah. Take Patagonia handing yeah. back um, the tax uh, benefits um, they had. I think that's a kind of a statement. But I, I'm with you. I think there is also there's a risk yet because you know the consumer perspective might change. Uh, the consumer might have the impression that this is kind of the equivalent of greenwashing, mm -hmm. and you just do it um, you know for the wrong reasons. So yeah, I think. But it's going to be interesting on to see on how that turns out in 2019. Yeah. Okay, and then the final bucket here is around the fashion system, and we have three, three broad trends here. One is around self-disruption, um, which is like traditional brands kind of breaking down their, own, their old ways of doing things and kind of reinventing themselves. The digital land grab, which is, you know, as, as you know, the skepticism and hesitation and cautiousness that might have kind of held the industry back when it came to digital... Um, adoption in the early years that's completely gone away and now you see this like massive land grab going on for people who are trying to get ahead and then this idea of on-demand which is like the power of automation and data to help um, you know provide you know what you know what people call made-to-order or on-demand production so the the one here that I really want to click on here Akim is self-disrupt I mean what are brands that you you feel have taken this tack and why have they been successful? I think the, the most obvious ones are you know, Gucci and Balenciaga mm -hmm. you know, in the luxury space where I think we've seen a paradigm for many, many years um, that was, if it is about luxury, it's about heritage, it's about workmanship, it's about you know, how old you are, it's about you know, having specific technologies that you own uh, in producing uh, luxury uh, products um, and and I think the the management uh, at Gucci has been brave enough to um, to position you know slightly differently and to go for a more millennial consumer uh, to go you know to become much more fashionable to also become much more edgy um, and now, of course, everybody uh, you know is looking into that. You know, everybody is looking into street style. Everybody is looking into sneakers. Every so, in that sense, um, I think people have realized that, you know, in particular, if you have a certain size, 
our business and if you have a certain market share you know among your competition that you really need to you know you need to push a bit harder and you need to take some risks in order to reinvent yourself okay um, because otherwise you know the 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 pure plays and the startups and and the small ones will will disrupt the the place for you okay can you just tell me a little bit about what you think is you know the the kind of role of um you know, the luxury group now, because if you think about, you know, Richemont and Caring and LVMH, what you, you were saying, you think that, you know, they're all appearing on the super winners list except for Richemont. Like, why are groups still relevant? I think a bit to, um, to what I tried to explain beforehand, there is, you know, certain requirements uh, in the growth path of, uh, of a luxury brand. Yeah. And, um, and in some geographies like the UK, um, you know, it is difficult to get the financing. You know, it's different to Italy. In Italy, is much more family-owned. There's much more, you know, support there. But in the UK, um, a lot of the players are too small for private equity, um, and uh, they are, you know, but they still need to have the expertise. They need to have the talent and so on. So, and, and I'm with you. I think they, there was a play to take smaller brands, to nurture them, to grow them. Frankly, we also thought uh, two, three years back that um, growth of the conglomerates would rather come from the portfolio of smaller brands than from the big ones. You know, I think there's few people in the industry that thought you could, you know, bring uh, Gucci uh, to those growth levels and, and to, uh, you know, to maintain that. Frankly, that's also going to be a challenge going forward. Yeah, you know, can you do that? On the other hand, those conglomerates have become so big now that you need a lot of small, small brands, you know, in order to, you know, make the needle move. So, and in that sense, I think we, we probably see some of the developments here. Okay. Thank you, Akim, for joining us. Pleasure. If you'd like to download the full State of Fashion 2019, you can find an easy link on the Business of Fashion, you know, at businessoffashion.com or also at mckinsey.com. The full report is here. It is quite uh, an expansive um, piece of analysis, so make sure you have a look at it. Um, we're really proud of the work we do every year on this report with McKinsey. It certainly helps us as we think about next year, and I'm sure it will help all of you as well. So have a lovely afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever you are in the world, and we will see you next time for BOF Professional Live. Thanks a lot for joining us. And, um, you know, looking forward to have the same discussion in one year's time. Bye. Bye-bye.